Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167. Or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we discover the world of deep-sea fishing with Bren Smith. He discusses his crazy and also dangerous days of commercial fishing, and the future of sustainable underwater agriculture, which he thinks is all about seaweed. The ocean is so unique, and that when you ask it, what should we grow, it gives you such a simple answer, which is why don't you grow things that don't swim away and you don't have to feed? And that opens up a whole realm of what does agriculture look like underwater? Also coming up, we make delicious maple whiskey pudding cakes, and Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett teach us the hidden food words found in flower names. But first, it's my interview with Anna Roche. She's the chef owner of Hisha Franco, located in the Socha Valley of Slovenia. Her book is called Sun and Rain. Anna, welcome to Milk Street. Well, thank you. Um, let's start with your valley. I've seen photographs of it uh, in Slovenia, near Italy. It almost looks too good to be true. So do you want to just describe it? Because it is pretty spectacular. 
It is even more spectacular, especially today when the sun is shining and there is blue sky. The rivers have the, that spectacular turquoise color and um, there is a lot of mountains and very dense forest. It's one of the greenest areas on the world, really, but it's also facing the Mediterranean Sea. So um, we have a little bit everything what is on a wish list of people, usually. So you used to go to the restaurant you now run as a kid. You say it's, there's an hour drive up a winding mountain road. One of the specialties was English roast beef. And you used to drink Fanta soda when you were there. Um, so w- what was the place like then in terms of the food and the experience? Believe me or not, Hisha Franco at the time was one of the first private restaurants in Yugoslavia. And when I was a kid, we were making lines to eat roast beef and strukli. That was something you absolutely had to eat. I will never forget. I was so nervous when we got inside. And Franco, the old Franco, looked such an important man that I always split my drinks over the table. <laughs> and he, when he saw us coming in, he was always, ah, there she is again. And <laughs> plum, my soda went over the whole table. And it was a kind of like a nervousness because I felt that place so imposing and so so important. You know, in that time, there was not a lot of dining out. I mean, the era of communism did some damage to the, to, to the culture of the table. So you take over the restaurant with no real culinary training, and you say that Things were pretty tough the first few years uh, when you were running the kitchen. You lost a lot of regular customers. So what kind of food were you trying to do? And then what kind of food did you finally end up doing? Well, before going to the kitchen, I was actually helping uh, managing the place for some years. And, you know, that was the time before investments, before credit. And we could afford, like, saying, ah, for the weekend, let's go to Barcelona to eat at El Bulli, or let's fly to London to go to Feddak and so on. So I had some kilometers in seeing that there is a lot going on in the gastronomy business. So um, when I took over the kitchen, the first thing I actually had to find out how to guarantee myself the freshest possible product. And of course, like suppliers wouldn't be coming to the, to the Socha Valley because it's a kind of really remote place. So uh, this is how we were going and knocking on the doors of locals and trying to persuade them to share their products uh, with us. But I always say that the most important thing I, I can hear from clients is, um, wow, through your food, we understand your environment. Through your food, we understand your products and even uh, your farmers. Let's talk about your food. Someone who dined there said uh, you were serving tripe, and you said to him, this dish is kind of a risk. And then his description was great. It says, rich, unctuous, salty, funky, confusing. The soft, noodly tripe was napped with a walloping of cheese. Eating it was like being punched on the nose. And you've also said that the food for some people, you look at it and go, you know, I don't know if I want to eat it. And then you start eating it and it's just fabulous. So could you just describe that that particular dish? Because I know you serve tripe a lot. So, you know, when you cook a tripe, you know how the kitchen smells? 
you can't miss it. Especially like, you know, we are talking about like local cows and so on. So, I mean, nothing is industrialized. So yeah, the tribes are cleaned and so on, but you still have these wild animal flavor. So often people said to me, I'm so sorry, ma'am, but could we maybe change a tribe? And I was like, let's do something. Because I hate badly prepared tribes. And because of my school experience with tribes, I actually avoided them my whole life. But then um, one day I went to uh, an Italian restaurant in Dolomite and she prepared tripes and I ate them and I thought that I've never had anything better. So I think in our life we have to know how to challenge ourselves by approaching things that uh, we sometimes think we hate and this can turn into a big love. <laughs> Seems like a, a comment that goes way beyond the table. Um, so you had the president of Slovenia show up at your restaurant and uh, he requested pasta with tomato sauce. Uh, what happened? Well, I think it was 2016 or 17 and uh, we got a call from a cabinet of the president asking for a table, but we've been booked out. So we emptied one table, we put some people at the fireplace to dine there. And then the president came and then he refused to eat my menu and he asked for pasta with tomato sauce and uh, a salad and um, yeah so I first refused and I was really really bitter and angry and I said like no way really no way I mean I understand diplomacy and I understand that you somehow sometimes have to compromise so um, yeah and then of course it's still a president so I went to our storage room and took the tomato sauce that my father does for the restaurant uh, in Istria from Istrian tomatoes that are probably, my God, the best tomatoes in the world. So I went to the other dry storage room and I found like, I think it was the Czechopasta pasta for stuff meal. So that was the only pasta I could get. And then I went to the garden to pick. We actually didn't have a salad. So I picked, you know, whatever I found, one carrot, one cucumber or whatever. And like I somehow created that, that meal. So... Uh, he said, can I see a chef? And then I, of course, because I'm stubborn, I first said, no, I'm not going to go out for a pasta with tomato sauce. So then, of course, you know, the president is the president. So I went out and then, uh, um, yeah, he complimented me. So like a few days later, I got the um, call from the cabinet of the president telling me that the president would like to award me with a golden apple, which is an award that is given to special people in Slovenia. But this is fun because Hishatranko is today a place to go. It's a famous place. So a lot of people try to make a reservation and go because it's on their bucket list. But on the other side, like with Slovenians, we have sometimes a, a feeling like, you know, they have troubles to understand what we are doing. And I often said, like, I would really like my clients to understand our work because there is so much work in it. So, Anna, is there something you're looking forward to doing in the next few years you haven't done yet? I think I would like to learn how to enjoy life more. I did so many things, I've seen so many beautiful things, but I also worked so hard. I'm trying to take two days off for myself and I see that this is really a treat because I really believe that if you treat yourself, your creativity is even stronger. And if you ask me where I want to travel, I don't know. I think I would like to climb on the highest mountain. Can I say something like that? <laughs> you sure. 
I think, you know what? I'll let you do that for me. Well, let's do it together. I'm inviting you. (laughs) But you should start training tomorrow because that's going to be a challenge soon. I'll write that down in my to-do list. Train with Anna to climb Mount Everest. Uh, Anna, it's been just a great pleasure to have you here on Milk Street. Thank you so much. And uh, and best of, well, I don't think you need luck, but all the best for the future. My God, I need a lot of luck. Wish me luck. (laughs) That's good. And I wish you good luck as well. Thank you. Yes. That was Anna Rosh. Her book is called Sun and Rain. Right now, my co-host Sarah Malt and I will be answering your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Okay, before we take any questions, I have one for you, Chris. Okay. It's not culinary, so it's a little bit off, but I think interesting. Not what I did in the 60s, okay? No, no, I already know about that way too much. No, here's a question. So do you have a show that you like to watch that's just sort of an oddball show that's not a cooking show that nobody would have expected? A TV show, a Netflix show, one of those, or an old-fashioned, you know, thing? I find myself drawn to black and white movies. I don't watch any current series right now. I'm currently watching The 39 Steps, Alfred Hitchcock's movie. I think it was Mm. his first movie. And it's almost like it was made in the 17th century, (laughs) the way it's done, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I would say old black and white movies are my favorites. Oh, okay. Okay, with that in mind, let's take a call. Let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, This is Chris Martin from West Liberty, Iowa. How can we help you? My 14-year-old son loves margarita pizza. So I've been working for probably the last year on trying to perfect this pizza, which seems like it should be really easy. I've got the dough down. I've got the sauce down. I've got a fresh basil plant. But the problem comes when I get the mozzarella. I get the larger kind of pieces and then I slice them. Mm -hmm. But when I cook it at about 500 degrees, like it releases all the liquid from the mozzarella. So it just has this kind of milky substance and i'm just trying to figure out can i press it like i would tofu like what could i do well i have an answer for you that (laughs) i finally came to which you're not going to like but let me tell you a story before i get there years ago i was in naples at one of the well-known pizzerias and they had three kinds of pizzas that's it and one of them was margarita Uh and they used the fresh buffalo mozzarella and everybody in the joint was eating with a knife and fork which I thought was a bit odd until I got my pizza because it turns out there was so much liquid in the cheese that the center of the pizza was soggy. Oh. The taste is great, but it, it basically ruins the crust. So recently I was developing a recipe for a pour-in-the-pan pizza. It's a very high-hydration pizza, very, very oh, sure. loose dough. And I tried using fresh mozzarella, and it was a disaster. And so finally, and here's the answer you're not going to like – I now buy the really bad, pre-shredded, in-the-bag mozzarella. (laughs) And it works like a charm because it's not wet. It's very dry. It melts nicely. And with everything else on the pizza, it's not like I'm really tasting the cheese. So it solves the problem. It's indelicate and an everyday solution. But as far as I know, there's really nothing you can do because that cheese has so much liquid in it in the high heat. The one answer, which is the expensive solution, is to go out and buy one of those gas-powered outdoor pizza ovens. They cost a few hundred bucks. Rock box. Oh, yeah. 
I got one of those a few months ago. It gets up to 900 degrees. I cooked a pizza in 90 Ooh. seconds. It was just amazing. And that'll take care of the problem. You're not going to get a soggy bottom crust and the top will be fine. But if you're just using an oven, I just go buy the stuff in the bag and be done with it. Sarah, am I now off the show? No, no. Actually, I was going to say, <laughs> if you want to avoid that problem, you need to get the pre-shredded stuff because it's tossed yeah. with cornstarch also. Yeah. The trouble with the fresh stuff is it's like very high in, in water. I mean, you could try slicing it very thin and patting it dry, weighing it down and patting it dry between paper towels. But I, I think you are going to come up with the same problem over and over again. Absolutely. For a rare instance, I agree with Chris. Uh, You know, the the funny thing is, his (laughs) recipe starts with number one, buy fancy new pizza oven for outside. You know. Well, no, I said that would solve your problem. I just got to tell you, though, I know it's a ridiculous thing to buy. It's stupid, but it is amazing. You can cook pizza in under two minutes, and it is as good as what you'd get anywhere. So. Wow. If you have a trust fund and you haven't taken money out of it lately, uh, go get a, a pizza oven. You know, whatever. Or, or, or spend two bucks on a bag of mozzarella. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Chris, Perfect. thanks. Yes. Thank thanks you, Chris. So All right. Take care. Yeah. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Please give us a ring anytime with your questions or mysteries. 855-426-9843. One more time. 855 855- Four two six nine eight four three, or email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hey, Chris. Hi, Sarah. This is Rob calling from Dakar, Senegal. Dakar. I was there 18 months ago. Wow. Amazing place. That indoor market is just absolutely the most amazing place in the world. We've driven by it. It looks amazing, but we have not been inside due to COVID, which sucks. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I saw your show on that. It looked great, made several recipes from it, and they've all turned out fantastic. So how can we help you? I was reading a recipe from a pretty famous chef that called for chives. My first thought here was, where am I going to find chives? And then I just thought about it for a little bit, and I thought, well, I'll just use green onions. I kept on thinking about it, and I honestly couldn't think of a reason to buy chives really ever again. Like pretty much every recipe I could think of would just call for using green onions instead of chives. And they just seem so similar, but green onions are so much more versatile. And I guess my quick question to you both as very famous chefs, if either of you had a recipe on hand that called for chives, but you had green onions, would you actually go out and buy chives. Well, I think the reason to buy chives is to support your local supermarket to make sure they're still in business a year from now because it costs three bucks for like this tiny little package. It's just ridiculous. Um, I can think of a case, Sarah, you probably agree with me. If I was going to scramble eggs, I wouldn't put chopped scallions in it. A little bit of chive is more subtle and would go better. But 99% of the time, you know, scallions, green onions are fine. I think chives are a little fresher tasting, a little sharper tasting, but you're right. There's very few times when you couldn't substitute scallions for chives. I agree. If it's just really a garnish, go ahead and go for the scallions. The only thing about chives is they're so pretty. They're more tender than thin-sliced scallions. So there's that to be said for them too. And I would also say they're pretty easy to grow. 
pretty much every single time I have bought chives, I use a tiny little bit sure. of them. It's just for like a topping of a potato or something like that. And then the rest just go bad in our fridge. But like with green onions, I'll just go through them like crazy. I buy them every week. So like for just a home cook, I just cannot think of a reason <laughs> besides supporting the grocery store. To well, buy scallions, chives. I buy them every week too. A couple bunches. I put them on almost everything. They're sort of like onions for me. I think of scallions as sort of grown up, tough, less piquant chives. I'd say more for garnish purposes are chives, not that they have no flavor. But, uh, you know, Rob, you're right. You throw out the rest of them. It's a waste. All the best, Robert. Hope to get to the market and uh, don't worry about chives. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I agree. Take care. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you both very Pleasure. much. And I look forward to the radio show every week. Thanks. So take care. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we'll hear from Brent Smith. He's author of Eat Like a Fish. That and more after the break. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash post. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Bren Smith. His memoir, Eat Like a Fish, recounts his career shift from commercial fisherman to restorative ocean farmer. Bren, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks. It's an honor to be on. I have to say, Eat Like a Fish, uh, your memoir, sort of is restaurant confidential, you know, of the sea. Uh, <laughs> and the stories are better because, you know, restaurant kitchen is more familiar to most people than a fishing boat, which is a lot more dangerous and a lot more interesting. So I, I love the book. Uh, you write, I crawl out of bed like a lobster most mornings. I've lost vision in half my right eye from a chemical splash in Alaska. I'm an epileptic who can't swim, and I'm allergic to shellfish. You, you seem like a somewhat unlikely candidate to, to end up doing what you're doing. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, this definitely wasn't the plan, right? And And I mean... In some ways, I miss my old life. You know, I miss the high seas. I'm a hunter and a, you know, I, I love to chase and kill things. That, that, that's my roots. And I never thought I'd be like, you know, growing arugula underwater and drinking tea, right? That just wasn't the plan. And I always say like, I can't go to the same bars I used to go to. I get beat up, you know? And your home life was interesting. You said your dad set up a work release program recruiting Inuit 
parolees from the local jail to become graduate assistants for the Inuit dictionary he was working on. So you didn't have the typical suburban upbringing. No, I mean, I was a mixed up kid. You know, my parents were from the from the U.S., went up during the Vietnam War, but raised me in the, you know, most eastern point in all of North America, you know, a really remote little fishing village in Newfoundland. And um, so I was always pulled between those two. My dad was a linguist and one of those sort of wild academics from the 60s that was allowed to kind of do anything, I think, and call it research. But I was just drawn to the scene. I was drawn to the my neighbors, you know, which were fishermen. And, uh, you know, I've often thought back, like, why was I so drawn? I mean, sure, it was the culture I uh, grew up in, but that just sense of meaning of feeding your country, the sort of self-direction um, that a fisherman has, uh, succeeding, failing on your own terms, like that's the soul of a, a fisherman. And as we say, you know, these are jobs you can write and sing songs about, like no one's writing good right. songs about right. lawyers. They write them about farmers, fishermen, <laughs> co-workers, steel workers, right? People who power, right. build and feed right. the country. And I wanted to be one of those, right? And so that, that was the that was the journey I embarked. I on. never thought about that. Maybe Bob Dylan should have written a song about lawyers. You know, <laughs> I don't think it would have gone over too well. Uh, you lived off condiment sandwiches, Wonder Bread with ketchup, mustard, and relish packets, and sugar lifted from gas stations and fast food joints. So, uh, your your early menu was uh, at that time was a little limited. <laughs> well, and you know, I am not right from the start and. For good or bad, right to today, I'm not a foodie. Like, I'm not moved by taste. Uh, food is a very functional thing for me. You know, I love the fish sandwich at McDonald's. I'm happy to eat at the gas station. Like, food has this other role uh, in my life. And, I, you know, I, re- I love feeding people, but I'm not, not attracted to flavor much. Let's talk about uh, your time fishing. Um, you, you talk about danger. It's obviously a very dangerous profession, and you said that the fishermen you're with didn't even try to escape the danger. It was sort of part of the gestalt of that profession. Could you explain that? Because I, I didn't quite understand that. Yeah, I, and I think it is hard to explain. There's something about the, the identity and the culture. I mean, no one... It's changed now some, I think. Um, you know, on Deadliest Catch in Alaska, I see people wearing life vests, right? Well, back in the... In the 80s, 90s, when I was on the boats, no one wore life vests, and, and I still don't. And in my head, it's like, oh, I'm not as mobile. I can't work as fast and be as agile. Um, there, You're just surrounded constantly by, you know, cranes and moving big crab cages and, and, and wild weather. But, you know, I'm, I don't want to defend, <laughs> defend the culture. It just is. Yeah. So... 40,000 hooks, you know, miles of line, you have to set it right, you have to untangle it. So what are a couple of things that can go really badly wrong with all of this? Yeah, so um, getting a hook in your in your hand, so, you know, when the hooks come into the boat and then they're going through these collars and the, the hooks are spinning, um, and if you grab the line wrong, uh, you'll get, I've actually have scars in my hand where I've been hooked real bad. And if it hooks in and grabs the bone, right, Oof. then you're in real trouble because you're just, you know, the gear doesn't stop. Um, the other thing that's a really simple issue is when you're setting gear, if the uh, coils are upside down, it's a huge issue. So someone's coil and set, set, is set it the wrong way and you lift that coil up and it's on your forearm and you're about to throw it off and it gets pulled from the wrong side so it gets pulled from your elbow 
it'll flip your arm out and drag you over the the side of the boat, over the gunnel. And then just this, everything is moving. So like your floor is moving, your cranes are moving, your cages are moving in a different direction, and every day is different weather and just all that motion and and things break, you know, all the time. So it's, there's an awareness that, uh, just understanding you're never going to beat the sea and it's and you just have to be as cautious and humble as possible. But underneath all of this, and you allude to this in the book, there's there's a meaning to that work which you don't find in the rest of modern life. I mean, you, you, you clearly feel, and I agree with you, that modern life at its base, at its foundation, is lacking some sort of urgency and meaning, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean... Being in the belly of a boat with 13 people for months at a time, working those 30-hour shifts, there's just nothing like it. I mean, that sense of solidarity and that just purpose of just uh, going out, catching as many fish as you can, and you're doing good. You're feeding folks. I mean, most of the fish I was catching was going to McDonald's when I was working in the Bering Sea, but that was okay. Like, that, you know, we were feeding the masses, and uh, so it wasn't like working day and night in a, in, 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 uh, a hedge right. fund. It was it was doing hundred hour weeks to feed folks. Uh, you got disabused of of especially salmon farming. You talk about you said shoveled hundreds of pounds of dank smelling pellets ground from the meat of the distant wild cousins of these imprisoned mutants. So you were not real happy with uh, sort of the commercial fish farming business, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I came out of the industrial fishery and and then the cod st- stocks crashed and I was sold. Aquaculture was supposed to be the great answer of overfishing and and transition for those of us that have been on the boats. But what aquaculture did, it took all the mistakes of sort of industrial pig farming on land and just moved them out to sea. So instead of asking the ocean what to grow, like what does it make sense? What's unique about the ocean as an agricultural space? It just grew salmon and tuna, but those were wild palate tastes, right, in markets. And the ocean is so unique and that when you ask it, what should we grow, it gives you such a simple answer, which is why don't you grow things that don't swim away and you don't have to feed? And that opens up a whole realm of what does agriculture look like underwater? Well, let's get to that topic. So you have come up with a pretty interesting sort of vertical growing concept. So what is the concept of your underwater farm? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say that I'm part of a long, long, long tradition, like going back thousands of years. The indigenous communities were building clam walls to capture clams. A Frenchman was shipwrecked in, uh, sorry, an Irishman was shipwrecked in, in France and tried to net some ducks. He put out nets and they got filled with mussel seed. So then he decided to become a mussel farmer. And that was the beginning of mussel farming. Like I'm part of this long tradition. I think what I did was I took all these different techniques, brought them together in one system and kept them simple, but I think powerful as a, as, as a way to grow food. So what it looks like, think of it as an underwater scaffolding system. So our kelp, rather than growing from the bottom up, it grows from these lines up near the surface, vertically downwards. And then we can use these same lines to grow mussels and mussel socks, which just look like kind of big sausages. And then scallops and lantern nets. And then I grow oysters down in the bottom in cages and then clams down in the mud. And this just allows us to really take that polyculture approach, grow as many species as possible in 20 acres, have a small footprint because we're vertical, 
and have a low aesthetic impact because everything's uh, underwater. So this is like land agriculture transferred to the ocean, right? Yep, yep. Taking all those lessons, like just not making the same mistakes. And these are all zero input foods. And I think this is so important. Like they take no fresh water, no feed, no fertilizer, unlike any other crop or animal on land. It's zero input food, making it the most sustainable and regenerative food on the planet. Also, I was shocked about the amount of production. You said per acre, uh, up to 150,000 shellfish and 10 tons of seaweed. I mean, it's highly productive. Yeah, yeah. It just there, there is, you know, when when you mimic Mother Nature with biodiversity, she just it just takes off. And um, uh, and the key from I mean, you know, regenerative ocean farming is great, but it's also we have to make money, right? This is about jobs. This is about making a living on a living planet. So the idea is to grow what makes sense as a farmer, and then get chefs and home cooks and everything as creative as possible, and and creating this new what I think of as climate cuisine and that's their burden like if a chef can't make what I grow delicious I don't I think maybe they should quit their profession like they're here on earth now (laughs) to create a climate cuisine take what the earth can provide and turn into beautiful delicious food and I think they can do it uh let's talk about the food you said your team prepares kelp linguine kelp ice cream kelp cocktails uh so what are the some of the things you guys are playing around with in terms of how to use what you're farming. Yeah. So, I mean, I made a mistake when I first started harvesting kelp. I gave it to the folks who were buying my oysters and they had no idea what to do with it. Meaning they're like, yeah, we'll did it and they cook with it and they just wrap it around fish or turn it into a, like a seaweed salad. And that just wasn't working. And then I discovered so the chefs that specialize in vegetables, right? And they were immediately just saw it as a green, right? A baby leaf kelp or a kelp noodle. And you, you, you know, you find someone like Brooks Headley and their recipes in the book from him where I gave it to him and he did barbecue kelp noodles with parsnips and breadcrumbs, right? So just amazing. And think of it as a whole leaf strategy, just like a whole animal strategy. Take this year. I just finished harvest last week. So the first... Third went to specialty products, plant-based, and then the the next section of the plant went to land-based regenerative farmers who used it to feed sheep, chicken, and fertilizer and compost, something that land-based farmers have been doing forever, like, you know, 150, 200 years. Um, and then the last part of the plant, the waste, went to make compostable seaweed straws and packaging. So that's what gives me hope, right, that whole leaf strategy because changing food tastes is slow, right? And uh, we have, what, 10 years to really turn this economy around so we can work to change tastes while we're also weaving our crops into all these different industries. You know, you write in the book about a particular bar, uh, which was, I guess, the toughest bar in the world. What was the name of the bar and where was it again? I don't remember. That was the Elbow Room up in Dutch in Alaska. And, 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 you know, you were good in a knife fight and et cetera. And now, as you said, you're drinking tea. You are a politician of sorts. Uh, you're a farmer. You're a long way from that. And it, you've also said that you're a hunter, right? I mean, that's what fishing is, I guess. Um, how do you reconcile your current more, you know, it's, it's like being a hunter-gatherer and then all of a sudden putting up a fence and, and uh, raising crops. It, that's a very different thing from your soul, right? So is this is this where you always wanted to be? 
or do you really kind of want to get back on a boat in the Bering yeah. Sea once in a while? <laughs> I mean, it is. I mean, so transition for all of us, whether you're a coal miner or a farmer or a fisherman, like we're going to have to transition into new kinds of occupations, right, that are that are deindustrialized. But it is we just have to acknowledge it's going to be heartbreaking. I mean that like I am I love to chase things, right? That thrill, that adrenaline, the humility of being in the high seas. Now I'm on Long Island Sound and like the most exciting thing that happens is like a rogue wave of two and a half feet. Right? I mean, it's like what uh, that's no fun at all. But Let's look into the soul of a fisherman. A fisherman is what I knew as a kid, a self-directed life, no boss, succeeding and failing on your own terms, which is really about agency, right? Having your own in your own direction and feeding the country. So we still get to keep those as farmers, right? We still get to retain those. We have to say goodbye to parts of our, our souls, but, but, but I think there's still jobs we can write and sing songs about. That's how I feel. Brand, it's been uh, just a remarkable pleasure having you on Milk Street. Thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, complete honor. It's just amazing what you thank all you. have built. So thank you for that. That was Brent Smith. His memoir is called Eat Like a Fish. My Adventures as a Fisherman Turned Restorative Ocean Farmer. The first large-scale commercial fishing boat may have been the Herring Bus. Now, this was a 60-foot-long, 100-ton broadbeam ship. They used drifting gill nets to catch herring. The fleets consisted of up to 500 ships and would stay at sea for many weeks at a time. Special cargo ships transferred the catch back to port while the herring bus fleet stayed at sea. Manned by Dutch sailors, the fleets were accompanied by naval ships since they often fished in English waters and were therefore considered poachers. Today we bemoan the declining stocks of wild fish due to overfishing, but of course this is nothing new. A fleet of 500 fishing boats put a pretty good dent in the stocks of wild herring. My point is simple. Nothing much has changed except technology. Human instinct is driven by profit, not sustainability. So enter Bren Smith. If he and others can make sustainable aquaculture profitable, then human instinct in our future may finally align. It's time to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, maple whiskey pudding cakes. Catherine, how are you? I'm good, Chris. How are you? You know, back in the early 1970s, Marion Cunningham, she was a famous cookbook author, used to work with Jim Beard, uh, redid the Fanny Farmer books. And one of the recipes I love from that book are pudding cakes. These are old-fashioned recipe. They're magic. You take a cake batter and you take a very thin sauce. You put the cake batter in your container, ramekin, whatever. Pour this thin sauce on top, which looks like it's never going to work throw it in the oven, it comes out, the sauce has dropped to the bottom of the ramekin, the cake batter has risen to the top, so you have cake on the top, and at the bottom you have a sauce which is now thick. So it changed places and it also thickens, so you get a cake with sauce in the same ramekin or souffle dish. So it's a little magic, and so this is a maple whiskey pudding cake, which is, I think, a lot more interesting than the standard lemon or chocolate. So how do we get started? First of all, this cake eats like a warm hug. They were making it in the kitchen the other day, and I stole an entire whiskey cake that I was supposed to just have one bite of. So just a little confessional to start off. And yes, Chris, it is very impressive, and it's a little bit of magic, but it couldn't be more simple. To start, we actually make the sauce. That's what you do first. And it really is like a brown butter sauce with whiskey and maple syrup and butter. But we actually add a little bit of apple cider vinegar. And that is a nice trick for kind of balancing out the sweetness and cutting through so it doesn't get too cloying. 
Then you're gonna whip together the simplest cake batter. You actually do it in a food processor, and it's just your standard all-purpose flour with some leavener and egg, and you do add a little bit of toasted pecan, which adds both texture and flavor. You put the batter in your oiled ramekins and pour over the sauce, and then it goes right into the oven. These are individual servings. You can make it in a bigger dish, but we like to serve them individually. Individual is best, and then you can, of course, hoard one for the cook, either before or after your guests arrive. It sounds like you don't hoard them. It sounds like you just eat one as soon as it comes out. Of shameless, oven. Chris. You're absolutely shameless. So maple whiskey and pudding cake, it's a little bit of magic. The sauce starts out on top, ends up at the bottom. You get cake and a sauce, and you get individual servings. Catherine, thank you. Thanks, Chris. You can get this recipe for maple whiskey pudding cake at 177milkstreet.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett give us a language lesson on edible flowers. We'll be right back. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Beth calling from Burlington, Vermont. Oh, Chris territory. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How can we help you today? Well, I had a question about goat cheese. I uh, recently bought some goat cheese, and I brought it home. I had bought it at a specialty cheese store. It was a little bit more expensive than I usually pay for goat cheese. The next day I opened it, and it looked like it had gray mold all over it. And so I thought it was rancid, and I threw it out. And afterwards, I looked at the um, packaging, and the ingredients said that it was treated with ash. I had never heard of that before. And so my question is, do you just scrape off the ash, and why is it treated with ash? Well, the ash is the French thing. Originally, it started in France, uh, that the ash was like a protection for the cheese. And it's just uh, made from charred vegetable matter. It could have been the grapevines, even, that they Mm -hmm. would burn up and put on top because they thought that it helped to keep insects and other contaminants away. But then later on, they also realized that it was an acid retardant. And acid is not good for goat cheese. It doesn't develop the same kind of flavor So this Mm -hmm. was a good thing to have on the outside, and it's basically flavorless. So it's completely edible. I could see, of course, why you thought that. It looks (laughs) like mold. But unfortunately, no, it was perfectly fine cheese. 
you know, I just was, I had never seen anything like that on goat cheese before. You know, it's from a small farm, um, so it was sort of high-end goat cheese. When I opened it, I just was kind of shocked because I thought maybe it had just gone bad. And right. afterwards, I wasn't sure if I'm just supposed to scrape it off. No, or no, if you it just was edible. Just eat it, Chris. Do you want to? Well, weigh I, in here? I have a few non-food things to say. First of all, you sound like my neighbors in Vermont, which would be like, why yeah. is there this stuff on the outside of my cheese? Which I just think is great. And the other thing I really love is you call a national radio show to say that you bought this goat cheese and threw it out because it had funny stuff on the outside. So, And that's also very Vermont. I probably should have looked at the packaging before I threw it <laughs> yes. out because I might have tried it. The rest of us do this very quietly, never tell anybody. Right. <laughs> well, now I'm going to try it. I'm going to go back and buy it because I'm sure it was delicious. I'm sure it was yeah. too. All right, Beth, thank you. Thanks, Beth. All right, thank you. Take care. Take okay. care. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Please give us a call anytime if you have a question. The number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Diane. How are you? Where are you calling from? I am calling from as far west in Canada as you can get, Victoria, British Columbia. How can we help you? Okay, my question was about using buttermilk as a substitute for regular milk. Because I often have buttermilk and it keeps longer, and I often have canned milk, but I never have regular milk. So I didn't know how it would use as a substitute. Uh, You could use it as a substitute. Just add, if there's leavening in the recipe, it's baking, for example. Just add some baking soda. Use half as much baking soda as the baking powder that's called for in the recipe. So if it's a teaspoon of baking powder, add half a teaspoon of baking soda because you have to balance the acidity of the buttermilk with the baking soda, which is alkaline. So that's just a little formula you can use to fix anything where there's leavening issues. I don't think there'd be any other problem, right, Sarah? No, but my question was where did you want to use the buttermilk? Like in what kind of recipes? I pretty well use it anywhere you can use milk. Wow. Now that's interesting. I think that's great. Most buttermilk is lean. I imagine you're using the regular supermarket brand? I use the supermarket, but it's the old-fashioned 3.5%. All right. So it has a higher butterfat content. But even so, it still doesn't have enough butterfat that you could actually boil it. And it sounds like you're not doing that anyway. You're just adding it wherever you would have added milk, correct? Exactly. I think that's brilliant. I like this idea. There are times, though, if dairy is too lean and it gets heated in a soup, right, Sarah? That could be problematic. Because the more fat you have in a dairy product, the less likely it is to break. Right. But if she doesn't heat it up too high, it's not going to break. And it sounds like she's not doing that. I didn't know that. If you brought something to a boil with a lean dairy product, it's more likely to break than if you had like heavy cream or half and half. Well, even half and half might. Yeah, that might break. But cream won't because it's got enough fat. Nor will creme fraiche, although sour cream will. It's very baffling. Yeah. Mm. But it sounds like you haven't gotten into trouble that way, so maybe we shouldn't go there. I get into trouble other (laughs) ways. Well, let's talk about that. Come on. Forget about buttermilk. I think I'll take the fifth. All right. Well, thank you for your question. And I think that it's good to know how to use up leftover buttermilk for all the other people listening, because that's an issue for everybody. And you've just given them some new ideas.
Okay, well, that is great. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Judy. Everyone loves my tomato sauce, and I found my secret ingredient in a silly novel I was reading. The head mafioso was saying to his cook that he was disgusted that the man can never make sauce as good as his mama's. In walks some of his soldiers holding a gagged man who is in big trouble with the mob. He's about to get killed when he professes that he can make sauce as good as the boss's mom. And he does. It saves his life. Along with onion, garlic, red pepper flakes, red wine, and tomatoes, the man adds ground fennel. And magic happens. Sauce as good as mama's. I added ground fennel to my next batch of tomato sauce, and it was wonderful. Now I never make sauce without it. Never know where you'll find wisdom. Enjoy. If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radiotips. Next up, it's Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. Grand Martha, how are you? We're doing great. Fantastic. What's on the menu for this week? Eating flowers. <laughs> Just munching on petals, right and left, <laughs> out of the yard, head down in the grass. <laughs> well, yeah, we eat edible flowers all the time in the form of broccoli and cauliflower, but right? there are a lot of other ones that can spice up a dish or add color to your plate. Um, you know, the ancient Romans had a recipe for baked brains and roses, which... Um, I'm not eager to try, but, you know, it's sort of like a little liver pate or something with rose petals on top. And the Victorians served pansies in gelatin. But there, there are lots of edible blossoms that have really picturesque etymologies. And one of my favorites is nasturtium. Do you ever eat nasturtium, Chris? I know. I've, I've seen recipes calling for it, mm-hmm. but I've never had it. Yeah, you know, they have sort of a peppery taste. And uh, the Roman historian Pliny said that the name nasturtium comes from Latin words that mean nose twister because of that peppery huh. taste. Um, and that would make it related etymologically to words like nasal and other nose words. And the last part of nasturtium may have to do with either the Latin word tormentum, which is related to torment, or twisting words like contort or distort or torque. And another cool thing about the word nasturtium is that the Italian word for it is cappuccina. Does that sound familiar? does have a slight familiar ring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you look at the nasturtium blossom, one end of it kind of tapers like the hood of a Capuchin monk. Huh. And those monks also had very drab robes. And so early on, they named the coffee drink cappuccino after the drab color of those robes. So it's all connected, this big web of language. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. There are some varieties of nasturtiums in Peru that have edible tubers, but those typically aren't grown in North America. Mm. Um, and, and they look like radishes. They look very tasty. I wonder what those would be like in a salad. Yeah, I wonder if they're peppery. And now, Martha, we have daisy, mm-hmm. which comes from day's eye. It's just a corruption over time of standard English, right? Correct, yes, because some varieties of daisies open just in the daytime and then they close up at night. So it's the eye of the day. Huh. Now, this is one that I know. Uh, dandelion comes from the French Dent de Lyon, uh, which means lion's tooth because of the leaf shape. Right. That's the one I actually knew. Oh, you did? Right. <laughs> 
But there's a there's a couple other levels to this. One is that name is similar to uh, the names in Italian, Portuguese, and German. They also have names in their languages that mean something like lion's tooth because of the shape. And there's a French name, which I'm going to let Martha say if she wants, um, <laughs> has something to do with the diuretic effect of dandelions. Mm-hmm. lit. <laughs> <laughs> Which basically means wet the bed. <laughs> you have to be careful how you say that. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. yeah. Um, and then connecting these last two words, daisies and dandelions, the French equivalent of the English phrase pushing up daisies, which means to be buried in the ground when you're dead, right. is the French to eat dandelions by the root. Manger le pissenlit par la cine, which oh. you can find in Les Miserables. So pushing up daisies in French is to eat dandelions by the root. Mm-hmm. So there's That's just even these interesting connections. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the French, as usual, when it comes to things like that, are, are very expressive. Well, I'll give you one more flower that's, that's really cool for adding color to a dish, and that's the pansy. I, I mentioned that uh, the Victorians uh, preserve them in gelatin, which, which would be just a beautiful little, you know, little cube of that yeah. as a treat. But uh, the word pansy is really fabulous because it comes from the French word pensée, which you may know means thought. It's related to words like uh, pensive. And uh, in Hamlet, Ophelia says, there's pansies, that's for thoughts. And the story about why pansies are called by this name may be that uh, the French saw a little elfin face in those petals because some Mm. varieties of pansies look like they have little faces. But the weird thing about that is that uh, in German, the term for pansy is Stiefmutterchen, which which means little bitty stepmother. And some people say that, that where the French saw a pensive little face on the flower, the Germans see a scowling stepmother. Now, I've told that story many times, but now that I'm a stepmother myself, I'm not sure I like it. <laughs> and that's all you need to know about the difference between the French and the Germans, right? But... Honestly, I've seen some hilarious pictures of pansy flowers that that look like they're really mad at you. I don't know if there's a Pinterest board with with angry pansies um, or a Facebook group, but if there isn't, there should be because some of them look really scary. That I've seen one that looked like Darth Vader. That, who's been drinking the wine around here? <laughs> Martha. I'm busted. <laughs> um, now, the Spanish also use the meaning thought for the oh, pansy, true. the pensamiento. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I believe the Italians have it as mm-hmm. well. So I wonder how far that story goes into the history of European culture mm-hmm. about the representing a thought or someone yeah. thinking. Grand Martha, thank you very much. I will rush out and make a nasturtium jelly. And uh, <laughs> Martha, if I'm like you, I'll get my spoon and look into it and find Darth Vader. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, Chris. That was Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, visit us at 177milkstreet.com. There you can find all of our recipes, take a free online cooking class, or order our latest cookbook, Cookish. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive Producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior Audio Editor, Melissa Allison. 
co-executive producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Bernal Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.